Welcome to D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. I'm D.T. Kane, author of the epic fantasy series The Agersfar Saga and The Spoken Books Uprising. Each week, I read from one of my novels, discuss my writing process, answer your questions, and have general discussions about fantasy fiction. It's like a book club, except I do all the work for you. Find show notes, info about all my novels, and much more at dtkane.com. Here's the show. Chapter 4. Where did they catch him? Baz asked. Although the conservator's chapel was practically beneath Xavier Tower, the roads in this part of erstwhile twisted and wound about, so it was still a bit of a walk to get there. The tower had once been the manor of Helfax erstwhile, the city's founder and one of the three great scribes. By all accounts, he'd been a miserable man, locked in his tower for most of his life writing books which sounded even more boring than Baz's mundane existence. Though some stories did say Erstwhile had cared for a crippled brother, so he couldn't have been all, stop that. Out on Romance Road, not too far from Paper Ferry, Liana replied. Baz rolled his eyes. Don't call it that. What? Romance Road. The ghost of a smile touched Liana's lips. It's a fine story that Helfax Erstwhile had the thing built just so he could visit Mina Fortune at her city on the Ocean Vast. It's a child's fairy tale, Baz said. Well, I think it's nice. It's good for children to know that two of the most important people to have ever lived had lives beyond saving all of oration at the burning. Baz considered pointing out that not everyone thought the burning had been all warm sunsets and fireflies, but decided against it. Conservators were fervent in their worship of the scribes. Well, I think children ought to be taught facts, like that the real reason Helfax erstwhile ordered construction of the Great Road was for the same reason anyone does anything. Money. He wanted a faster way for his wagons to reach Fortune City, and Tome, when that was still a city anyway. A few hundred miles through unpaved wilderness isn't a fun or fast trip on a wagon. How would you know? Liana said, eyes sparkling. You've never been outside Erstwhile's walls. Baz began to say his worldliness, or lack thereof, was entirely irrelevant to knowing the discomfort of riding in a wagon, but as they turned a corner, Xavier Tower came into view. Sorry to end this rousing discussion of romance, religion, and fiction, but we're almost there. Maybe we should get back to the part where you tell me what's going on with the Cityless. For a moment, it appeared that Liana intended to argue further, but then a smile replaced the frown on her face. Fine, Liana said. I'll let you have this argument, for now, but it's going to cost you later. Baz sighed. She was always saying things like that. Whenever he made a point that was clearly the right one, she wouldn't concede. She'd just look coy and say something cryptic, as if he hadn't won the debate at all. Funny thing was, when she did that, he somehow ended up feeling like he hadn't. Sometimes Baz wondered if she wasn't from Enigma with the way she could cut words and make him feel things he'd no intention of feeling. So, the cityless. Isn't the table's standing order to, you know, eradicate on first contact or whatever flowery language the barristers decided to use? Why did the... Actually, who is it that brought him here? The conservators, said Liana, voice growing thoughtful. One of their pilgrimages out to Fable to see where the paper used to be made. 
Whoa, Daz said, furrowing his brow. That makes even less sense. No offense, but you conservators tend to be even less tolerant of the cityless than ordinary folks, what with their crazy stories about living scribes and a return to the old ways. Liana shrugged. Can you blame us? Imagine what it'd mean if that were true. That there are still living bound who can write new books. It really would be a return to the old ways. It's bad enough the occasional speaker figures out how to read. Can you imagine one making books? Liana shivered. Baz grimaced, taking care not to look at her. After all, she wasn't intentionally trying to make him feel uncomfortable. Nearly everyone in erstwhile felt as she did. It would be pretty awful, I suppose, Baz said, but I still don't... This one can read, Liana interrupted. Oh, Baz said, eyebrows rising. Then, as the full import of that struck him, he repeated, Oh, yeah, Liana nodded. The pilgrimage saw him using a spoken book to fend off a pack of wolves along the western shore of the deeps. He managed to toss the book into the lake before they caught him. A shame they weren't able to confiscate it. Where do you suppose he learned to read? No idea, Liana said, biting her lip. That's one of the reasons Master Restorer Brennaton and the others you saw at the chapel were so uptight. I thought that's just how they were, Baz said, grinning. Liana didn't return the smile. This is serious, Bastion. A cityless who can read? Where could such a vagabond possibly have learned it? That's why they brought him back. They need to find out who taught him so they can stop it from happening again. Root out the blasphemer who taught him, eh? Exactly. Baz whistled under his breath. Poor bloke. Liana snorted in a decidedly unladylike manner. Nothing poor about it. He's a criminal. Baz shrugged. And I suppose Deliritus needs me because a representative from each of the libraries is required to be present for the questioning? Liana nodded. It figured. Hopes of something interesting dashed again. Just another criminal being put to the question. The Duke sometimes had multiple of those a week. Maybe it'd be a little different seeing a conservator do the torturing, but Baz doubted it. Usually, the actual torture was a fruitless exercise. Either the mere threat of it got the interrogator what he or she wanted, or the subject wouldn't talk at all until reaching the breaking point, at which time it was just as likely he was simply saying what you wanted as the actual truth. Deliritus almost certainly had Delida with him, his creator. She would do anything he needed during the questioning, but Deliritus would burn pages before he made a public appearance with only one speaker, and the Duke was unlikely to permit him to take any of the Duke's own speakers to an event as mundane as a questioning. Torchsire had few enough as it was compared to the other libraries, and none would be making any money standing about at a questioning. So Baz was merely being summoned to serve as political capital, an object to show that Torchsire wasn't completely destitute. That realization turned his mood in a hurry, and he walked the rest of the way to Xavier in silence. When they arrived... The guards at the door were from the conservatory, alluding to the questioning being conducted within. They nodded to Liana and glared at Baz, but let them both pass without comment. They were ordinary guards, not harbors like rocks, but between the hooded white habits that cast their faces in shadow and the thickness of the forearms folded over their chests, Baz wouldn't have wished to say anything that might annoy them. An enforcer of the conservatory was perhaps the only person in oration who could even hope to stand up to a harbor. They stepped into a vast, non-agonal entry hall, a 
pair of large banners hung upon each wall. One was crimson and purple, showing the outline of a tower, the sigil of Xavier Library. The other was of Helfax Erstwhile's dragon, though unlike the symbol on Baz's robes. This one was a red outline on a white background, marking it as the flag of Erstwhile, rather than the black and red symbol of destruction. The hall's center was occupied by a spiraling staircase that led up to the tower's peak. Bass had climbed it several times to attend table meetings with Deliritus, an experience his legs would prefer to forget. Thankfully, rather than ascending, Liana led him down to the basement. Questionings always seemed to be done in basements. It wouldn't be seemly to do them above ground, what with the risk of the screams carrying to the ears of ordinary citizens. Nothing to see here, my good people. When they reached the questioning chamber, a round stone room lit by mirrored stand lamps, it seemed they'd already missed most of the proceeding. A man who Baz assumed was the cityless in question, as evidenced by his hands hanging from the ceiling by an old, rusty chain so that his toes barely touched the floor, stood at the room's center, head lolling to one side. His bare chest displayed the marks of multiple, well, implements of the truth-finding process, or so the conservators called them. A conservator in a crimson and purple habit marking him as a Xavier librarian was droning on with questions, though the Sidious seemed to be doing a poor job of answering in Baz's estimation, judging by his semi-conscious state. Liana drifted away from Baz towards several other conservators. The rest of the men and women in the room were representatives of each of Erstwhile's nine libraries, arrayed in a roughly circular fashion around the Sidious. None were the actual dukes or duchesses of their respective libraries, who rarely left their own domains save for formal meetings of the Table of Enya, which this was not. Each library's group of representatives was made up of three to five individuals. A reader, who was the true representative of his or her library, the reader's harbor, and one to three speakers. Generally, it was considered arrogant to go about with more than one speaker of each branch of the Trinity, sort of the reader's equivalent of announcing for all the world to hear how much money one made. The readers were easy to pick out, as they were the only ones wearing hats. That was another game they seemed to play, attempting to out-hat one another. Each one seemed wider brimmed than the next, adorned with colored feathers of ridiculous length. And if the hats weren't enough to clearly mark out the readers, then the mobile lecterns strapped to their shoulders and hanging before their chests certainly were. These small platforms permitted them to read while keeping their hands free. Baz could identify the library to which each individual reader belonged from the sigils on their robes. The Crimson Tower of Xavier, Charging Stallion of Kolnar, Axe of Exgal, Running Man of Mahan, Fish of Prashat, Alchemical Flask of Osinkai, Spirit Barrel of William, Gavel of Friedlaw, and, of course, the crossed torches of Torchsire. But beyond their home libraries, Baz could name few of them. Hellar Xavier, heir to the Xavier Library, was the only one Baz could definitively identify by name, and that was only because Deliritus hadn't stopped talking about him for weeks. He was one of only two other entrants besides Deliritus himself competing in the Actus Trials this year. Well, that, and the fact he was likely the most famous reader in erstwhile, being heir to its largest library. Hellar had short, dark hair, pale eyes that reminded Baz of a dying fish, and a smile upon which Baz hoped he was never on the receiving end. He actually had five speakers with him. 
they were in his library, so that wasn't as bold as going out in public with five. But still. The Xavier heir was positioned just beside the Cityless, leaning close to another man and whispering into his ear, occasionally glancing to a spoken book that was open upon the lectern hanging from the harness around his shoulders. The man to whom Hellar was reading had a mustache that showed some gray and a head that was bald instead of merely shaved, the Enigma's scales branded on his forehead. The man's name was Trunnell, and he was Hellar's influencer. The rarest of the three types of bound, influencers were useful for everything from turning trade deals in one's favor to convincing people to reveal their deepest secrets. Baz had spent many a long afternoon waiting outside rooms with other speakers while readers met in private session about one thing or another, and he'd chatted with Trunnell a few times. He'd been entertaining enough, a quick wit and a dry sense of humor. Now, though, he was intensely focused on the cityless, repeating the words Hellar read in a quiet, rhythmic chanting. Sweat glistened on his bald head. True mind control was nearly impossible on all but the weakest of men, and generally a man that weak would be dead before you could control him. But the spells of an influencer could push all but the strongest of wills in the speaker's desired direction. That the cityless still appeared to be holding out under the combined strain of the conservator's torture and Trunnell's influence was impressive. Every now and again, the questioner glowered in Hellar's direction, as if blaming him for the lack of substantive responses he was obtaining. Or perhaps it was just a bit of the general tension between conservators and readers. Baz certainly didn't get involved in politics, but one would have to be blind, deaf, and likely dead to miss that it peeved the conservators to no end that, though they knew the languages of the Trinity, they had no speakers of their own. The readers had yet to cede such privilege to the conservatory, and likely never would. Baz looked about the rest of the chamber. The only other reader he recognized was the representative from Colnar Library. Mira? Maya? Something like that. Colnar was a middling library, probably one of the few with which Torchsire could legitimately argue it competed in terms of size, and Mara was niece to the library's duchess. She would also be competing in the trials, and Deliritus had rambled as much about her as he had Hellar. Her lips kept trying to twitch into a grin as she watched the cityless squirm in his bindings, the fingers of her right hand playing over the pommel of a dagger at her belt. Baz grimaced and looked away, thinking not for the first time how glad he was that it wouldn't be him who accompanied Deliritus on the trials to compete against the likes of her. Baz's eyes finally found the Liritus, and by the look on his face, he'd been trying to get Baz's attention for some time. The Liritus motioned for him to come over, the frustrated urgency in the gesture not quite befitting one who was destined to take over a library of erstwhile. Baz drew moderate looks of disdain from a few of the readers as he circled around the room's perimeter, though most simply ignored him. The harbors of each reader, of course, paid him keen attention, ensuring he posed no threat to their charges. What they thought he could possibly do unarmed and being half their size, he didn't know, but they stared at him all the same, which supplied far more motivation to move quickly than the glares from Deliritus. None were as large as rocks, but they were still huge, and they all had the obligatory razors slung over their shoulders and leather masks covering their noses and mouth, leaving just their disturbingly lifeless eyes to track him across the room. Bass further increased his pace. 
the conservator was still making demands of the non-responsive Sidulus when Baz reached Galeritus, so he pulled up beside the Torchsire heir without speaking, not wishing to risk even the possibility of earning a penance. For a time, he simply stood there observing the questioning. Baz didn't care what Liana said, he felt sorry for the Sidulus. If it was true what Liana had said and he was a cuss, they'd be burning him anyway. You burned books to destroy them, so that's what conservators did to cusses as well. If there was any logic in that, Baz had yet to hear it, but there it was. Regardless, if they hadn't gotten useful information from him by now, they likely wouldn't be getting any. Put the man out of his misery and move on. I say, Bastion, Galeritus said in a low tone, though not so low that nearby readers didn't turn angry glares at him. Couldn't you have gotten here a bit faster? I was the only reader with one speaker. Even Colnar brought a pair. Baz glared back at Deliritus a moment before catching himself and looking to the side. Delida stood next to him, casting an annoyed glare of her own at him. She was pretty, he supposed. That is, if you liked your women too thin, too tall, and too blonde, and had a predisposition for mulish faces. That was apparently precisely what Deliritus liked. Delida's room was right next to Baz's in the library's basement, but her near-perpetual absence from it at night strongly suggested she was sleeping elsewhere. "'Sorry, Master Deliritus,' Baz muttered, grimacing as he noted that their brief exchange had drawn several more heated looks, including from a conservator standing beside the one asking questions. His sleeves were rolled up, hands stained red, his white habit splattered in crimson to match. Baz shuddered at the sight of him, a vicar. Officially, Vickers were conservators dedicated to studying the mysteries of the scribes, but everyone knew they were also well-versed in the more advanced methods of getting men to answer questions that needed answering. "'Where were you?' Deliritus demanded, apparently oblivious to the stairs. "'Where was I?' Baz hissed, trying not to draw further attention. "'Busy running an errand that could have just as easily been carried out by an ordinary servant.' Deliritus's face contorted into what would have been called a pout on the face of anyone other than the heir to one of the city's libraries. Well, I hadn't any other productive use for you at the time. I figured I'd have you do something rather than sit idly around the library. Baz knew for a fact there'd been a speaking scheduled for that morning, and chances were at least one of the supplicants would have desired something calling for a destructive spell. But Baz didn't bother arguing. So you obtained the supplies for my journey? Deliritus asked. Oh, well, no. No? Why not? Baz's sigh drew looks from half the room, though he didn't immediately notice. Well, there was a door, and a helpless man, and an annoying girl who told me you needed me immediately. So, Reader Torchsire, said the vicar, loud enough for the entire room to hear. Perhaps you'd care to include us in your conversation, seeing as how most of the room can already hear it? Deliritus reddened. In a voice that broke halfway through the sentence, he said, No, Vicar Vintas, I apologize for the interruption. Oh, it's no bother, Vintas said, his tone of voice suggesting otherwise. Though I do think you've nicely pointed out that this line of questioning has grown stale. Perhaps a new tactic? Might we borrow the services of your harbor for a moment? Deliritus's expression almost became a scowl before smoothing into one of gracious submission. Requesting the use of another's harbor was sort of like asking someone for help moving a large piece of furniture. 
No one ever wanted to say yes, but you were inevitably left looking like a cuss if you said no. Of course, vicar. Rocks? Deliritus turned to, and looked up at, the harbor. Please go assist the vicar, yes? Thank you. Rocks, unlike nearly everyone else in the room, had no compunctions at all regarding showing his emotions. His eyes indicated just how he felt about leaving his reader's side for even a moment. But after his bald head swiveled back and forth several times, confirming there were no apparent threats within proximity of Deliritus, he complied and lumbered forward to stand by the Cityless. Hellar and Trunnel backed away to make room for him, Hellar's gray eyes studying rocks like he was a particularly interesting bit of architecture. Thank you, Vintas said, his voice writhing like maggots in an apple, and his eyes gleaming with what seemed almost ecstasy as they turned to consider the Cityless. Now, Harbor, if you would, lift his head up for me. Rox grunted and yanked up on the chain holding the Cityless until his chin lifted off his chest. Let's try again, Vintas said. Where did you learn to read? The Cityless groaned. I told you. The Home of the Scribes. Home of the Scribes? Bess said under his breath. Tome, Deliritus said without taking his eyes off the Cityless. Now be quiet. Baz imagined glaring at Deliritus. Well, he imagined far worse things than simply glaring at him, but he kept his eyes straight ahead as well. Clearly, the torture had driven the Cityless completely mad. Tome had been raised over 300 years ago, now little more than a big pile of rubble. Vintas sighed as if he were being made to do something he didn't wish to do, though the glow in his eyes said otherwise. He made his way over to a table arrayed with many sharp instruments several of which showed signs of recent use. His lips pursed, as if dissatisfied with the selection. Then he turned to the readers and motioned to the Cityless with a dramatic sweep of his arm. Does anyone have a knife I might borrow? Almost instantly, the reader from Kolnar Library stepped forward, holding out the dagger Baz had observed her caressing. She was no longer hiding her smile, looking eagerly from her blade to the Cityless and then back to the vicar. Something's not quite right about her, Deliritus muttered. For once, Baz found he agreed with the Torchsire heir. Ah, Reader Marla of Kolnar Library, Vintas said formally. I thank you. He gave her a small bow, then took the dagger and turned back to the unfortunate prisoner. Marla stepped back to her place eager eyes never leaving the man hanging from the ceiling. "'We know lies when we hear them, Cityless,' Ventas said. "'No one has lived in Tome since the burning. We send readers there every year. They see the occasional dragon, but no men, and certainly no one who could teach you to read. Now, one more chance. Where did you learn to read?' The Cityless groaned, his chin falling back to his chest once more. The vicar's face curled into a grim smile. Harbor, hold him taut. Rox grunted again and yanked up on the chain. Then things began to happen very quickly. The rusty chain snapped in Rox's hand, the unexpected loss of tension sending Rox hurtling backwards. Startled, the vicar also reeled back, dropping the knife as he did. The room seemed to collectively inhale for a moment and hold its breath, except for the cityless. The declaimer's transcendence, he cried out like a madman. He'll speak the words to set us free. 
What in the burning did that mean? Baz had no time to ponder it. The ends of the broken chains were still locked around the Cityless's wrists. Swinging his arms around his head, he lashed out at the nearest reader, which just so happened to be Deliritus. Now, Deliritus deserved some credit. He wasn't too bright, and generally not good at much of anything, but he had taken fencing lessons, as all readers did. His reflexes were quick, and he ducked the chain. So instead, it struck Delida square in the throat. The blow lifted her off the ground, throwing her several paces back before she crashed to the stone floor. An instant later, the Cityless had the vicar's dropped knife in hand and was charging at Deliritus. The Torchsire air made the excellent defensive maneuver of holding his arms out in front of him and letting out a sound that was half scream, half whimper. Baz glanced to rocks. The huge man was still peeling himself off the pavers. He wouldn't get to Deliritus in time. Visions of his wildest dreams coming true flooded Baz's mind. Deliritus dead. Just what the idiot deserved. Finally, payback for what he'd done to tax. No one else in the room was making any move to help Deliritus either. The gathered readers would gladly watch one of their competitors struck down. Baz ought to have felt satisfaction at that, Deliritus falling victim to the same societal mores that had victimized Baz's brother. But instead, Baz found a hollow emptiness in his gut. Baz stuck out a foot into the Cityless's path, sending him sprawling. His saving act was nearly wasted as the knife went flying from the Cityless's hand and whistled past Deliritus's left ear. Deliritus gave another scream-cry moan and fell away from the dagger, though the reaction was so delayed as to be comical. The Cityless pushed himself back to his feet, disoriented and looking about. A moment later, his face was introduced to Rox's razor. Now, if you've never seen a man punched in the face by a harbor's razor, it likely isn't something you wish described to you. The weapon struck right above the bridge of the Cityless's nose, literally taking off the top of his head. But the razor in its one-handed form isn't a straight-edged weapon like a sword, but rather jagged like a saw, so the Cityless's scalp wasn't so much sheared off as exploded off, showering gore over everyone within ten yards. A small part of Baz's mind further noted that Rox's hand ended up breaking the Cityless's nose, but that hardly seemed notable given his other injuries. Despite his delayed reaction to the knife, Deliritus was the first of the crowd to recover from the shock, running over to the fallen Delida. He knelt beside her, cradling her head on his lap. A black bruise had already sprung up on her neck. Oh, Delida! Deliritus cried. Speak to me! Bass had just assumed she was dead. He certainly didn't think he would have survived getting whipped in the throat by a heavy chain. But at the sound of her name, Delida stirred, lifting her head and opening her eyes. She opened her mouth, grimaced, then spit out a tooth before responding. So right, Delfirtitus, she slurred. Aim fine. And Deliritus, showing just how much he cared for Delida, cried in response, Oh, your voice! What will I do for the trials if you can't speak? Somewhere in the crowd of readers, Marla Colnar laughed. All right. Welcome back to DT Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. Today is February 2nd, 2022. 
uh, as I record this, uh, episode four of the book club. Uh, we'll start with my personal update here, as we do every week before we launch into our discussion of chapter four of the Actus Trials. Um, I had a bit of a script written out for this, but I think I'm going to go off the cuff here a little. Um, actually, we'll, we'll go behind the curtain early today. I got about a week-long pro- process for producing each episode right now. I'll probably get a little more efficient uh, as time goes on, but uh, for now, usually I spend a day or two writing the script, and then I record the reading on one day, so the actual uh, narration of the book, and then I record this analysis, uh, usually the following day, sometimes the same day if it's a shorter reading, but usually I'm pretty wiped after after doing the reading. That takes a lot of concentration <laughs> and some frustration, too, depending on how uh, how well uh, how well or not well I'm uh, I'm doing the reading that day, uh, and then I have to edit the video the next day. So what is that for four or five days to get get the one episode out? Um, so right, so I wrote this script that I'm that I'm using. You know, I I partially read off the script and then partially, uh, you know, just go off on tangents as well. But um, you know, the big thing that happened to me last week was this is the first podcast I'm releasing when uh, the Actus Trials uh, has actually been released. Um, th- this podcast actually came out for all of you out there to listen to when the Actus Trials was already available, but I'd recorded the first few episodes before the book actually released. So this is the first post-release uh, podcast uh, I'm doing, and you know, I'm I'm kind of in the uh, post uh, the post release letdown <laughs> here now. There's so much so much to do leading up to the release. It's like my my to do list is is endless. There's always one more thing to uh, you know get right or one more piece of data um, to enter. You know, geez, I you know I had to you know remake or regenerate the audio or the ebook file like five or six times because I kept finding one little thing that was wrong with it. And you know you can't just go in and edit the audio book. You have to go edit the Word document and then convert it and uh um, you know, but, uh, you know, very exciting the day it actually, uh, it came out and I still don't have my own physical copy <laughs> of it yet. I'm waiting. Um, you know, I, I ordered my author copies from, from Amazon and Ingram Spark. They, they send those to me at cost, but, you know, of course they don't give you a fast shipping <laughs> for those. So I actually got a, got a text from one of my friends with a photo of, uh, of my book. He has it in hand before I do, you know, but I guess that's one of the, uh, one of the downsides to being self-published, right? Um, for those who don't know, um, I don't have to buy boxes and boxes of physical books. That's not something any uh, authors have to do anymore. There are print-on-demand services now that uh, do work for the major retailers like Amazon. Well, Amazon has its own. Then Ingram Spark does it for other places like Barnes & Noble. Um, and when a customer orders one of my books, uh, those services just print one and ship it to uh, whoever ordered it. So uh, if you're not too in tune with how publishing is working these days, that's a kind of a, a relatively recent in the past decade innovation in that regard. Uh, but like I said, you know, the release uh, exciting, but now I'm, uh, you know, a little bit, just a little bit of the uh, the letdown. You know, there aren't really like fireworks or anything that go off after the release. It's just a uh, just on to the uh, next thing here, particularly for me, since I'm still kind of early on here in my author journey. The Actus Trials is the second novel that I've 
published, though I do have two more coming out uh, in a few months. I I kind of I wrote the first three books of the series all back to back last year without releasing any of them, and now I'm releasing them in kind of quick succession uh, here. Um, so it's a <laughs> it, it's a long road, and especially for self published authors, it's uh, you know, you had to you had to have several books in a series before you really start seeing serious traction in the market. So I will uh, carry on, and I am thankful to all of you out there who are listening now because you are uh, you're on the train here just as it's coming out of the station. Uh, so you know, in a few years when I'm hopefully uh, a big famous uh, self-published author here, you can say you were here at the beginning of the book club. So. Thanks for listening, and why don't we uh, launch into our analysis here of Chapter 4 now. Um, One thing I'm going to try to do here, I haven't done it yet, because as I just told you, I haven't done the video editing yet, but I'm going to try to start tossing some names up uh, on the screen as I introduce new characters. I had a listener uh, who suggested I start doing that, and I thought that was was a good idea, because, you know, a lot of these names are obviously not, not familiar to you like a pront v lexdoor in the uh in the prologue there uh and i guess if you've been paying attention you've seen him mentioned a few other times already too but um so let me know if that's helpful when i start doing that on the video here for this episode four and uh, i think i'll try i'll try to throw the names down into the show notes uh as well too uh if you're not uh watching on youtube so you'll have that for you as well or you could always uh, pick up uh, your own copy of the book and follow along. <laughs> but if uh, you don't want to do that, that's fine too. We're gonna we're gonna keep reading it here on the podcast uh, free of charge. So so never fear. Uh, okay, so I'm gonna go a little bit out of order here on on the analysis. Let's talk about this cityless uh, person first, because that's kind of what the chapter revolves around. Even though Baz and Liana diverge a little bit from that at the start of the chapter here. Um, so, you know, right off the bat, we learned that the table, right, which is erstwhile's government, made up of uh, a duke or duchess from one of the, each of the nine libraries. I guess maybe it hasn't come right out uh, and said it yet, but, you know, there's there's nine libraries, and each of them is headed by either a duke, who was obviously a man, or a duchess, who would, who would be a uh, a woman. So so nine leaders at the, uh, the table of Enya, which... Uh, came up with that because Enneagon is a uh, nine-sided shape for <laughs> for those of, for those of you wondering uh, right so the table the government of erstwhile has this standing order to kill uh, any of these cityless on site um, apparently as Baz puts it they have crazy stories about living scribes and a return to the old ways uh, Liana clarifies that this means that they advocate for a return to days where men could read, speak, and, heaven forbid, write new spoken books. Uh, Liana is clearly disturbed <laughs> by the very prospect uh, of that. And uh, I guess that shows, too, why the erstwhile's government has such a harsh stand to these folks, right? They kind of stand for pretty much the opposite of what their readers want, which is this separation uh, of powers between the readers who can't wield magic and the speakers who are able to pull the magic out of the spoken books but uh, do not know how to read. Uh, you know, the readers want to uh, have this monopoly over the power. And, uh, you know, we saw what happened when that monopoly is uh, 
when someone tries to break that monopoly with uh, poor Baz's brother uh, in the first couple of chapters there. And, uh, you know, Liana's vehemence here kind of, uh, you know, he, it unsettles Baz a little, right? And, you know, he has to tell himself that she wasn't intentionally trying to make him feel uncomfortable because, you know, basically everyone in the society feels like uh, Liana. You know, they are, uh, you know, we saw how the illit that Baz interacted with last week reacted when Baz implied that he might be able to read. You know, no one, <laughs> no one, no one wants to be uh, accused of being able to read unless you're a, a reader at the top of society. You know, but Baz probably has a bit of a special reason to feel unsettled here, right? Like, you know, what's he referring to? And, you know, he's one of those individuals that Liana finds so disturbing, right? You know, we haven't uh, come back to this yet, but we saw in the prologue that, you know, he at least was learning the basics of reading. It's, it's unclear what, if anything, he's done to further that. Uh, since uh, the unfortunate incident with his brother in the speaking room 10 years ago. Uh, you know, but there it is. Baz is hiding, uh, hiding this secret. And, you know, we're laying, uh, we're laying some seeds here for tension in the future, right? Because, you know, Liana and Baz seem to, you know, they seem to at least be friends, right? Maybe, you know, maybe something more. We'll talk about that in a minute here. Uh, you know, but Liana's a conservator, right? And she hates cusses even more than the rest of society in general. Uh, it seems they're, you know, they're particularly out uh, to to enforce the separation of power. So uh, we're gonna have to keep an eye on that as the uh, as the story progresses. Baz is keeping this secret from her that she's not gonna like. Um, but okay, so then we move on here, and you know, Liana, Liana drops the real bombshell of the chapter, and that's that this city list apparently uh, can read. Uh, he is bound, right? Which means he was born uh, able to draw power from the spoken books. Uh, so all speakers are all speakers are bound. They are bound to the books. Um, and since he is bound and knows how to read, that means he is a cuss. You know, he can he can pull the magic from the books on out on his own. He doesn't need someone to read them to him. And, uh, you know, par kind of paradoxically, that's why they didn't execute him on the spot, because they want to figure out um, where he learned to read. So uh, it sounds like they are, uh, you know, they are questioning him over at Xavier Tower to figure that out. Um, and that's where Baz is headed. Um, so he's about to see what happens, right? What happens to someone <laughs> like him, or what will happen to him if someone discovers his secret. Front row, uh, front row seats to uh, to the consequences of that, and uh, we also learn here. You know, Baz has been summoned uh, because each of the libraries has to apparently have a representative present at this questioning of the city list, and that really puts a damper on Baz's <laughs> excitement. He's not, in, and kind of oddly here, he's not even really dwelling on the fact that you know it's. You know, it's because oh, oh he's going to see what happens to someone like him, which you know maybe implies that Baz isn't really uh you know maybe he hasn't been doing much reading lately because he doesn't have quite you know he doesn't have a super visceral reaction on a personal level, you know he's more just like bored with it right. It's just another criminal being put to the question. He's being real cavalier about it here because apparently this happens all the time in erstwhile more evidence that this isn't such a great place to be living, right? You know, unless, unless you're one of these few elite readers uh, in the upper caste of society here. 
you know, and probably shows a little bit of the good soul he's hiding beneath all of this sarcasm, too. Uh, you know, he, he shares what he thinks of torture, not too high on it, right? And it's like, you know, either the mere threat gets the victim to talk or, you know, by the time they break, they're just willing to say anything. So he's obviously on the uh, the side of torture is, uh, you know, at least on the side that it's a waste of time, if, if not uh, against it for other reasons. And, uh, you know, Baz is also kind of depressed here because, you know, originally, oh, a cityless. I've never never even seen one of those before. This will be interesting. But he's really just being summoned because, uh, you know, we learned that Deliridus would, he would burn a page, right? <laughs> burn a page before he makes a public appearance with only one speaker. You know, another one of these fun turns of phrase um, <laughs> about uh, about bad things happening to books. You know, he would rather do something abhorrent in this society, him being Deliridus, than be seen without his retinue uh, in public. So, uh, and again, if you, if you have any, uh, ideas for, uh, fun book-based curses like I use here in, in the Actus Trials, you know, shoot me an email and I'll, I'll share those on a future, future episode. You can get your, uh, your 10 seconds of fame here on D.D. Kane's epic fantasy book club. Uh, all right. So, like I said, a bit out of order because the, uh, the chapter starts here, um, you know, with this kind of back and forth between Baz and Liana. <laughs> They're kind of proven to be quite a pair, right? You know, what no, What little we know about Liana so far, she seems pretty driven and optimistic about things. Remember uh, last week we learned about how she really wants to get promoted and kind of move up the ranks in the conservatory. Um, and, you know, this story she tells certainly shows her optimism, whereas we've got Bass, who is uh, sarcastic and kind of abrasive, right? And he's like a, the, the Brillo pad of characters here <laughs> so far. And, uh, you know, Liana also befuddles him a bit. What is, uh, what is she, what does she say here? Oh, yeah. Whenever he made a point that was clearly the right one, she wouldn't concede. And somehow he ended up feeling like he hadn't won the debate at all. You know, so, uh, you know, maybe, <laughs> you know, she puts his, uh, yeah, she, she spins his mind around it, it's, it seems here. So, uh, you know, doesn't think quite straight around Liana all the time. Uh, so, like I said, they're having this conversation at the beginning. We get a link back to the prologue, right? Liana mentions Liamina Fortune and Halifax erstwhile. And, uh, you know, they were the two who Prat V. Lextor mentioned uh, at the beginning of the book to the book dragon, right? He said they, uh, they fell, right? They fell uh, fighting whatever it was that was threatening the great library there in the prologue. And uh, we learned that they were founders of the two major cities of oration, right? You know, obviously we're in erstwhile um, and Helfax erstwhile. So obviously he's, he's the founder of the city we're in now. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, extra credit here if you picked up on, you know, Liamina Fortune, right? Uh, that's where Pront V. Lextor told the book dragon to take that book in the prologue, right? You know, the book has to uh, get to fortune safely or something along those lines. Pront tells the book dragon in the prologue. And, uh, you know, Liana makes, you know, she says they were two of the most important people who have ever lived because they saved all of oration at the burning, so they, you know, they didn't just die fighting there at the Great Library. They they did something that helped save Oration uh, from the burning. 
And that's another connection there too, right? Mentioning the burning. Uh, a little subtle, but not too hidden, right? Pretty good evidence that whatever it was that was happening in the prologue, it was probably an event from this burning. Uh, and we first saw that referenced last week, some sort of disaster that happened in the past. So, you know, we're, we're kind of putting to get, putting into context a little, um, you know, what was happening in that prologue. And also that the prologue happened quite a bit in the past from where we are now, because we learned that the burning uh, happened, you know, several hundred years ago uh, in the main story here. Um, and we also learned that Prant had, uh, you know, well, we've already established Prant had a connection with Liamina and Halifax, right? Right, so we know these three were important, but, you know, just how important were they? And, you know, we learn um, Baz, I think it's Baz, yeah, Baz tells us, right, he says Halifax erstwhile was one of the three great scribes, right? You know, and, you know, whoa, the conservators were praying to the scribes uh, in last week's episode and back in Chapter 3. You know, and, and Bess says again, uh, in reference to Liana, you know, the conservators were fervent in their worship of the scribes. And we also know the scribes are the ones who created uh, the spoken books. So we've got some puzzle pieces falling into place now about kind of the world's, uh, the world's lore and backstory here. There were the three scribes. We know Helfax was one of them, the founder of the city of Erstwhile. And, you know, I think we can, it's a pretty safe bet, uh, Liam, Liamina and Prant, V. Lextor were the other two scribes, right? You know, so they're all treated, they're all treated like gods, uh, at least by the conservators, and they were all at this uh, calamity called the Burning. But uh, you know, at, at least two of them, Liamina and Helfax, suffered some terrible fate there. And you know, at this point, we don't really know what happened to Prant V. Lextor. You know, so this really drives home just how bad the Burning must have been. Uh, you know, the three scribes who are apparently, they're at least thought of like gods, right? And they created the spoken books that hold this world's magic. So, you know, even if they aren't true gods, they're certainly uh, powerful individuals here. But even they weren't unable, or they weren't able to, to stop the burning. So just driving home how bad it must have been. And we also get this quick story about the <laughs> Romance Road, which is apparently also called the Great Road, which connects the cities of Erstwhile and Fortune. Uh, you know, Liana's, <laughs> Liana's position in the argument is that Helfax Erstwhile built it uh, just so he could go visit Mina Fortune at her city on the Ocean Vast. You know, so she's got kind of a romantic perspective here. And it, <laughs> it probably didn't come to... Uh, any of you as much of a surprise where Baz, Baz isn't buying into this, right? You know, it's a child's fairy tale, he says. <laughs> uh, the real reason uh, Halifax Erstwhile built this road was the same reason anyone does anything, money. Uh, you know, Baz, <laughs> Baz doesn't seem to have much faith in, in, in really anyone here, uh, does he? He's quite, quite the, sard the sardonic character um, here. And, uh, you know, though... Going down to the next level of that, you know, beyond Baz's uh, surface <laughs> sarcasm, he does also reference that the Great Road connected not only Fortune and Erstwhile, but also Erstwhile um, and Tome. Um, at least when Tome was a city, um, right? So, uh, you know, implying here that Tome is no longer <laughs> a city. You know, what happened to it? You know, it seems like a pretty good bet that, uh, you know, this, this burning event that devastated Tome to the extent that, uh, you know, it's no longer considered a city today. I think Bass tells us at some point in this chapter it's really just a pile of rubble. 
at this point. And, uh, you know, one other point here, one of Pront V. Luxtor's titles was Librarian of Tome, right? You know, remember his string of titles back from, from the prologue. So, and and we did establish that the prologue took place in Tome. That's mentioned a few times there, too. So Tome was someplace really important. And, uh, you know, then we had this big disaster there, and now it's not even a city anymore. So that's probably going to be pretty important here moving forward. So so keep that in mind. We'll, we'll be hearing more about Tome here uh, in the chapters uh, to come. Uh, anything else we want to talk about here before we head to Xavier Tower? Oh, just this note here that Bass has never, um, never been outside of erstwhile's walls, right? So he, uh, you know, he has spent his whole life in this city. You know, Liana, <laughs> Liana kind of makes fun for Baz, makes fun of Baz here when talking about the road. Baz some, says something like, you know, unpaid wilderness is is no fun to travel over in a cart. And, you know, Liana's like, well, how would you know? You've never done that, <laughs> so. Uh, you know, Baz, uh, that, that's going to become relevant, too. Baz, not the worst, most worldly of people here, which I guess isn't a surprise. He is a slave. He's not, uh, he's not taking vacations to exotic places or anything. All right, so I think that's enough of that. We kind of move on from Baz and Liana walking to kind of the meat of the chapter here over at Xavier Tower. Um, we get there, and we immediately see that it's being uh, guarded by guards from the conservatory, right? And they are called enforcers, who are, you know, apparently big dudes. They're kind of like harbors, though Baz makes a point of saying, well, they're just ordinary guards. Uh, they're not harbors, though in the next breath he is also like, well, a conservatory enforcer is, you know, the only person who might have a chance of standing up to a harbor, right? So they're still, uh, still pretty mean dudes that you don't want to mess with. Um, you know, and we see here, you know, so it seems the conservators have their own bodyguards, uh, similar, similar to the readers, right? They have their enforcers, the readers have their harbors. Okay, so we, we head downstairs to stairs. Uh, I don't know why I said it that way. They head downstairs, uh, to where the questioning is happening. <laughs> One of my favorite quotes from Baz in the, in the book here. Uh, again, some criticism of, uh, of torturing here questionings always seem to be done in basements it wouldn't be seemly to do them above ground what with the risk of the screams carrying to the ears of ordinary citizens nothing to see here my good people <laughs> oh man uh i don't know maybe maybe you guys think some of baz's uh comments here are a little cheesy but you know they make me laugh so <laughs> hopefully you get some chuckles out of them too while you're listening or or reading along here uh so you know this this poor guy, this this city list. He's he's already the conservators have already been going at him for quite a while, right? When Baz arrives, you know his hands are his hands are chained up to the ceiling, right? You know he's kind of just hanging there, all stretched out, you know, barely con conscious. He uh, you know he's shirtless, and you know his chest is apparently all bloody. You know again, uh, Baz a little a little more obviously desensitized to this whole process a bit. You know, but his his chest is m covered in marks of the truth finding process. Um, <laughs> the city, you know, Baz goes on. Well, he seemed to be doing a pretty poor job of answering, uh, you know, the interrogation questions, uh, seeing as how he was barely conscious. <laughs> you know? So, you know, Baz, he's really not phased by seeing someone get tortured here. Um, and, you know, again, really, you know, just 
seeing seeing more of the bad side of this ruling class here in erstwhile if if, if baz has seen so many uh torture sessions that you know he you know he right i mean there's a guy being tortured this end of the room and baz is just kind of looking around at all the other readers right you know it's not even like a big deal for him um another kind of interesting note here that again not dwelled on but you can you can see how this kind of uh sets the stage for some tension here in this society so we've got the uh, uh and we'll 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 get to the influencer reader here a little more in a second but so we have the people from the conservator you know this this vicar and uh, another conservator doing the questioning but we've also got uh this influencer who is uh you know kind of using magic to try to convince this guy to answer the the questions right but uh you know we know that the conservators can read right but it's uh another reader who is uh reading to the influencer so definitely see some tension here you know baz kind of comes right out and identifies it for us that you know the conservators would love to have their own speakers but you know the readers have not given them that privilege uh you know again the readers are keeping this monopoly on their power um, and you can certainly see, you know, what with how, you know, the important place the conservatory obviously holds in the society with the ability to keep the spoken books in good condition, you know, there's probably some resentment there between the conservators and the readers. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised. And by not surprised, I mean, that's going to cause some problems in the future <laughs> here. Obviously, uh, obviously I know. So, and, um, uh, and this 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 vicar guy too so he's the, the head torturer and i <laughs> i just got to say i picture uh you know with this guy i kind of picture the the torturer um at the end of braveheart if uh, if you guys have seen braveheart ah uh, he is if, if you've seen braveheart you know what i'm talking about that guy this guy is just the worst you know he's dressed up in his you know his you know his priest get up and he's got his stringy graying hair and ah uh, he's he's just the worst um, uh, especially since he's the guy who, uh, kills poor old Braveheart there in the end. Spo <laughs> Spoiler, sorry if you, if you haven't seen Braveheart, but, uh, you know, I think that movie's, uh, old enough here and, uh, you know, uh, based on a history that happened like a thousand years ago. So, um, I don't, I don't really think that one needed a spoiler warning, but, uh, maybe, uh, maybe I'll, uh, edit one back in. <laughs> <laughs> Any, anyway uh okay so so baz is down here in the basement with the torture going on and we see some other readers here uh you know this is really the first time we've seen other readers uh besides deliritus right and he barely qualified <laughs> back in chapter two because he was still just a kid then so now he's going to be in his early 20s um, but before we get there, I do have a listener question here. Uh, another one from from Diane. Diane, thanks, uh, thanks for all your participation here in the in the early going. And just a reminder, if anyone else has questions they'd like answered on the show, just uh, shoot me an email, or you can drop one in the Facebook group uh, as well. Uh, DTKane at DTKane.com or at DTKane Author on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, but Diane asks, uh, DT, I'm still just a bit unclear on the difference between readers and speakers. Could you explain that a bit more? Uh, sure. 
Sure, Diane. I know we haven't, uh, you know, up to this point, we haven't seen a bunch of uh, interaction between the two, so I don't blame you, especially <laughs> since I, I admit it's a little confusing, right? Because, you know, the readers do also speak, as in they talk. They're, they're reading, <laughs> they are reading the words out loud. Um, but, you know, you know, remember it this way, the readers, you know, the readers can read, right? And that's the thing in the society. Only a few people can do it, and it's the readers. That's the, that's the special thing uh, that they can do. So they can read, but they are not bound to the spoken books, which means even though uh, they can read the book's words, uh, doing so doesn't produce any magic when they do it. They need to read the words to a speaker who then repeats the words that are read to them, and then that results... Um, in the magic, because uh, as we were mentioning a little earlier, the speakers are bound to the spoken books, uh, which means they are born with the ability to pull the magical power out of them, um, and they could do it on their own if only they knew how to read, but they do not know how to read, um, which is how they are enslaved to the readers, and they can't cast any magic unless a reader first reads aloud a book to them. So I, I hope that uh, cleared it up uh, a little more for you, Diane, but definitely uh, shoot me another email if, if you'd like to, to discuss that further. Um, right, so we got representatives from each of the nine libraries down here, though none of them are dukes and duchesses, right? So apparently this hasn't been deemed important enough for them to attend, which I guess is kind of interesting because Liana was horrified, right, by this idea of the cityless who was able to read, uh, but apparently the city's government isn't super concerned about it. None of the dukes or duchesses deemed this important enough to attend uh, personally. So maybe a little more evidence of tension between the, the readers and the conservators here. You know, are you know, the conservators more concerned than the readers in maintaining this acute uh, separation of powers? Or, or maybe, you know, and that doesn't make too much sense because obviously the readers really like holding as much power as they can. So maybe it's just the readers, uh, you know, they uh, they view the conservatives here as a bit uh, too uh, too zealous, maybe. You know, they've cried wolf one too many times, perhaps. And the reader's like, oh, no, well, they're putting someone else to the question. You know, I'll send uh, you know, I'll send Deliritus over to Xavier Tower, uh, you know, and he can report back. You know, it's probably going to be a waste of time. Um. And we also, uh, quickly in passing here too, we learned the conservatory doesn't have a seat at the table of any, right? The city, the city's government. So, you know, again, just uh, <laughs> more and more tension here. We've seen how powerful the conservatory is, but they apparently uh, don't even uh, get to sit on the, uh, the government here. All right, so the room's crowded here with all these readers and their, uh, <laughs> their retinues. Every reader has their their entourage and we see a bit of like the the keeping up with the joneses type situation here right you know readers apparently don't go out in public without their speakers and their harbors and the harbor you can kind of understand right you know the harbor is their bodyguard they're not going anywhere anywhere without them but you know it seems like you know, <laughs> i was trying to think of a modern day analogy here i guess it's kind of like going out in public without a speaker is sort of like going out with a cheap suit on right you know, technically, you know, you've got your suit on, you're dressed right, but, you know, everyone is still judging you behind your back, and that kind of seems how it, how it is, you know, you, you know, you are, you are showing your power when you, you know, you bring your speakers out with you, you know, your slaves, basically, you're going out in public showing, oh, I, I, I'm powerful enough to have my slaves here, so, you know, kind of this, uh, 
comp- unspoken competition here between all the nobles. We also see that in the way they dress, uh, right? You know, only the readers wear hats, apparently. And Baz gives us a, another quip here. You know, that was another game they seemed to play, attempting to out-hat one another. Each one seemed wider-brimmed than the next, adorned with colored feathers of ridiculous length. So again, kind of like I said in the uh, in part one with Delirious hat, you know, they got these giant, um, the giant floppy hats. You know, again, think like Three Musketeers hats. Uh, they're called called Cavalier hats, right? They're they're these really big hats with the big feathers coming out. Uh, so obviously, we got these. The readers are clearly wealthy and image obsessed, kind of like the typical the typical nobles here and uh they've also got this interesting fashion i don't know if it's a fashion item but certainly accessory these the mobile lecterns right that they use to hold spoken books so it's like a you know like a tray that's suspended from a harness so they can you know have a book and read it you know if you're on youtube you kind of see me uh posing here a little (laughs) um you know but read uh read the book with it while having their hands free kind of like a mini desk hanging from their necks you know, it's certainly uh, certainly a ridiculous thing for us to imagine here. Um, but with how important books are in this society, you can see um, you can see how this would kind of be something that arises. You know, especially and we haven't seen readers fight yet. Spoiler: We're going to see a duel between readers in chapter five. So make sure you tune in next week uh, for that. But. Uh, you know, if, if, if you're fighting and reading spells, you know, you want to have your hands free, <laughs> right? So, you know, that's, uh, you know, another another justification for these, these mobile lecterns we see. Uh, so we go on and we meet, or at least we are introduced to, uh, a couple of specific readers. Um, and I'll just go ahead and tell you that this isn't the last time you're going to see either of them. That's why I took the time to introduce them <laughs> here. Uh, you know, I'm not... Characters especially, I don't waste a lot of time, uh, you know, creating secondary and tertiary characters unless they're going to keep popping up. So that's, uh, you know, and that's a generalization, I would say. I'm sure I'll get a comment from someone. But, you know, on page page 75 of Book X, you made this character and you never showed up again. Well, I'm not talking in absolutes here, but I, I you know, I try not to, you know, if I've got a guy who appears for like one second and then you never heard from him again, I probably don't even give him a name. So, uh, there you go. That's a bit of my philosophy there. You know, I'm not, I'm not Stephen King where I'll have a perspective shift to a character who you've never heard of before. And then you never hear of again after two pages. So that's not, not my style though. Um, that's not throwing any shade at Mr. King because <laughs> obviously he's a little bit more successful than me. So, but I'm just saying that I don't do, uh, I don't do it that way. Okay. Um, so Hellar Xavier the heir to Xavier Library, which is uh, erstwhile's wealthiest library, right? So he's a pretty he's a pretty big deal here, and he's got five five speakers. You know, Baz tells us this is a bit of a social misstep, right? Uh, it's kind of like flaunting your wealth a little uh, too openly here. So you know, I guess Hellar is in his uh, he's on his home turf here, so still maybe not quite as bit of a uh, faux pas here as it otherwise would be, but we still see some arrogance going on with having so many speakers displayed to everyone around. And, uh, <laughs> you know, if if we suspected that maybe Baz's disdain for the reader stopped at Deliritus, he kind of debases, his, debases us of that assumption. Wow. Debases us 
That's one of those uh, phrases that's hard to pronounce. I would have to go back and re-record that if I was doing the narration. But uh, here we just press here we just press on here in the analysis. You can you're getting the raw the raw uh, first take audio here for the most part in the analysis section. Uh, but Baz describes Hellar. He has short dark hair, pale eyes that reminded Baz of a dying fish, and a smile upon which Baz hoped he was never on the receiving end. So, you know, another kind of unsettling, uh, unsettling description here. <laughs> Though Baz doesn't have many uh, flattering descriptions of uh, of really anyone here, right? Well, except uh, except Liana, right? So maybe a little more evidence of how he feels about her. Uh, but anyway, back to um, Hellar uh, here. You know, we also get our first look at another type of speaker, right? So Baz is a destroyer, right? And we've got destroyers, creators, and uh, influencers. And we see an influencer here. Uh, Hellar is actively engaged in reading a spell to his influencer as Baz enters. And, you know, basically, influencers are capable of low-level mind control. Now, Baz quickly establishes there's limits here, right? You don't just speak a spell and you're pulling the strings of <laughs> pulling. Oh, maybe this would be a good uh, good one for the YouTube uh, thumbnail here, pulling the strings, Puppet Master uh, D.D. Kane here. Um, you know, so, you know, you don't just snap your fingers and make someone do whatever you want. Uh, Baz tells us, True mind control was nearly impossible on all but the weakest of men. And generally, man, that week would be dead <laughs> before you could control him. Uh, seeing if you if your constitution is so bad that you could be, you know, you could be a hundred percent mind controlled. You know, you're probably not breathing. Uh, but the spells of an influencer could push all but the strongest of wills in the speaker's desired direction. Um, so, kind of an app name, influence. You know, they are, you know, they are nudging you in 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 the way the speaker wants. Um, and it's sort of a frightening thought, this kind of society where this magic exists, right? You know, you got to be constantly wondering, you know, say you're negotiating with someone. And Baz, I think he does mention, you know, influencers are used in trade, right? Um, to kind of push trade deals in the directions you want to go. So you got to be constantly on alert. You know, geez, do they have a they have an influencer hidden around the corner here somewhere? And of course, I'm, I'm trying to look around the corner of my monitor just to make sure I'm not being influenced. <laughs> right now, but you know, you got to constantly be on alert for this stuff in this society. Um, and right, and I already made this point earlier. I had I had a note here just to point out how it's you know the conservators doing the questioning, but it's still a reader uh, uh, reading the spoken book to the speaker. Because again, the conservators do not do not get speakers. The readers are keeping monopoly on that. Um, and then, you know, we do kind of see how, you know, Baz you know, makes, you know, Baz doesn't make it a secret that he does not, uh, he doesn't really pay attention too much to what goes on in day-to-day uh, -day society. There's all these readers around, but the only one he can really identify at all is uh, the one from Colnar Library. I mean, actually, it seems Baz only knows her because we learn that Hellar and then Marla, Marla Colnar, the, the the woman speaker here with the with the dagger right um, pardon me they are the <clears throat> they are the two other competitors in the actus trials that Deliritus is going to be going on and of course Deliritus has been rambling on um, about both of them 
and uh, we learn she's not too pleasant, right? You know, she's enjoying watching this torture. Uh, she's trying to hide this smile, and she's uh, she's petting this dagger of hers, right? You know, got a little uh, golem with the ring going on <laughs> here. You know, while obviously Baz didn't care for Hellar, uh, Marla seems to frighten him, uh, frighten him a bit. He doesn't even want to look at her, and um, you know, we kind of see why here in a little bit as we move on in the chapter. And uh, just another quick little thing here. I was trying to remember where I came up with Marla's name, and <laughs> I I don't remember this for sure, but I think I might have just lifted this out of Fight Club. I think I was just thinking of, I was trying to think of a name where I could uh, you could inject a healthy dose of contempt into it, and you know, this kept coming back to Edward Norton in Fight Club. You know, Marla is uh is the the female character there. Um, Played by uh, Helena Bonham, Bonham Carter, right? That's her name in uh, in Fight Club in the movie. Anyway, but you know what's the quote there towards the beginning? If I did have a tumor, I'd name it Marla. Marla. So that's uh, <laughs> and that should give you an idea of uh, you know where Marla's character is is going here. Uh, we're gonna have lots of reason to feel contempt for her as we move on. Uh, right. So we meet. Those couple of readers, and then Baz finally makes eye contact with Deliritus, right? And it doesn't seem too much has changed about Deliritus since we met him originally uh, in Chapter 2, uh, 10 years ago, in book time. Uh, he's still a bit of a brat, it kind of seems, right? Still hasn't quite grasped how to act in accord with his station. Um, you know, kind of our introduction to Deliritus here, Baz tells us, Deliritus motioned for him to come over. The frustrated urgency in the gesture not quite befitting one who is destined destined to take over a library of erstwhile. You know, Baz obviously doesn't have much respect here <laughs> for Deliritus, uh, right? It, it's not really Deliritus' angry glare that gets him to come over, but all these other harbors, because you know, once they see that Baz is there, they're all kind of staring at him, making sure he's not posing a threat and, you know, being under their scrutiny. Their their lifeless eyes, right? Baz says, being under the scrutiny of their lifeless eyes, that's what makes them hurry over to Deliritus just to get out of their stares. You know, and just like in Chapter 2, things only get worse for Deliritus once he opens his mouth. Uh, this is not an isolated incident. We're going to see this again. Deliritus would, uh, he would benefit from a little less talking in lots of situations here. Though as, <laughs> even though Baz uh, criticizes Deliritus for that, we'll see that Baz would probably benefit from that same um, evidence too. He has trouble keeping his mouth shut uh, as well. Though here it's Deliritus who is getting them in trouble. You know, in fact, we see Baz probably has a little more sense than Deliritus does here. This is an official function, right? A man is being tortured <laughs> just a few steps away. You know, and Baz has enough sense to remain silent, so he's not annoying the conservators. But you know, Deliritus is just you know he just really starts whining, right? He starts. Uh, whining to Baz about, you know, why were why were you late? I only had one speaker with me. It was so embarrassing. Oh, Deliritus. Oh, you're such a wimp, it seems. And remember, like I said, I like I like Deliritus, but we're still uh we're not really warming up to him yet here. Um we also very quickly meet uh Delida, who is uh, a creator, though we don't really learn anything about creators at this point, but she uh she is there with Deliritus already. She was the one speaker he had with him. Uh, yeah, he had with him <clears throat> before Baz arrived. Uh, and, you know, 
just more demerits against Delirious. I mean, he apparently sleeps with Delida, right? You know, Baz doesn't come right out and say it, but he's like, well, she's never uh, she's never in her sleeping quarters, which are right down the hall from Baz's, so you can kind of imply what's happening there. So, you know, Delirious is one of these guys who, uh, you know, doesn't just, you know, he uses his slaves for uh, uh, a variety of things here. So, again, we're not casting him in a very, uh, very good light. And then he just keeps going on and on, right? You know, Baz is growing increasingly uncomfortable because, you know, Delirious is over here just going on about how Baz was late. And, uh, you know, all the readers are starting to glare at him being like, you know, what are you, what are you going on about over there, dude? Um, you know, and so we've got that. You know, all the <laughs> – increasingly everyone's just kind of glaring at him. Delirious is totally oblivious. Um, we also do him, he kind of reaffirms a little what Liana noted earlier, how he doesn't really want to use Baz, you know, because he seems to think that, uh, you know, all he, all he had to do for Baz that morning was have him run this errand, right? But, you know, Baz is like, well, I know there was a speaking schedule for this morning. You know, you couldn't have, <laughs> you, you don't think anyone needed a destructive spell at that, uh, at, at the speaking earlier, earlier today? So, uh. You know, and Baz notes that the library has ordinary servants, right? So presumably that means ones who don't have the ability to draw power from the books. So, like, and this probably isn't the best example, but, you know, think of, like, you know, we have a guy who runs an auto repair shop, and he's constantly sending out his best mechanic to pick up groceries, right, rather than work on the cars. Uh, so there does seem to maybe be some truth here to Liana's theory. Delirious has some reason where he doesn't want to use Baz, and maybe he is a a little afraid of Baz trying to take revenge on him. Um, but despite all that, there's kind of this underlying interesting dynamic between the two of them, too. You know, it's ma- they're, they're supposed to be master-slave, right? But they're kind of just bickering, right? <laughs> bickering back and forth like an old married couple. I mean, we heard back in Chapter 2, you know, it was a special privilege, supposedly, for tax to be able to talk directly to Deliritus. Mostly, you know, speakers are supposed to keep their mouths shut unless someone addresses them. Uh, you know, but Baz doesn't seem to have too much problem kind of going back and forth with Deliritus. He does, like, he does catch himself, you know, he's glaring at Deliritus, and then he kind of looks to the side when he figures out, you know. But he's, you know, he's not necessarily being uh, submissive here um, either, right? So... You know, just just interesting, and uh, you wonder if a you know a different reader would maybe put up <laughs> put up with Baz the way Deliritus does. All right, so finally, kind of Deliritus pays the price here for his uh, obliviousness, right? You know, they draw the attention of the vicar, right? Who he is the conservator who is leading the questioning of the of the city list. We learn. Um, Vickers are members of the conservative who specialize in studying the mysteries of the scribes, as Baz puts it. So they're kind of like the, they're the zealots, right, of this already religious institution. You know, they, 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 they study the scriptures, right? Um, but uh, beyond that, they also kind of play this unofficial role of being torturers, right? So they're kind of like, kind of like the hand of the light um, in Wheel of Time, Right, you know the uh, the the questioners, uh, or you know if if you're not a Wheel of Time fan out there, think like an Inquisitor from the Spanish Inquisition. There, you know, the vicars, you know, they they use religion as kind of a cover for their cruel methods, right? So that's not not really a unique <laughs> unique invention by uh, by me here, but uh, you know that's that gives you kind of a reference point. 
Uh, so our vicar here, his name is Vintas, and he, you know, another unsettling character here, right? He's got his sleeves rolled up, he's covered in blood splatters, so he's obviously been going at the city list for, for a while. Uh, and so he's not someone you really want to get called out by in public, right? You know, Delir just kind of wilts under his scrutiny, you know, his, his voice cracks, right? You know, this guy, he's 23, and the heir to, you know, we know, we know Torchsire is not very well off, but he's still the heir to one of the powerful institutions in this city, you know, but he, uh, you know, voice cracks when he's apologizing to the victor, or the vicar, and the vicar kind of capitalizes on this, right, you know, he asks uh, if he can borrow rocks for a minute uh, to help in the questioning, which is really, this seems like another faux pas, right, that Baz points out, his, his, Baz's analogy, which I think is a good one here and here in modern day, it's like asking someone to help you move a big piece of furniture, right, you know, you need to, no one wants to move that big piece of furniture, right, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm, uh, maybe, uh, maybe I'm just a bad person, right, but no, no one really wants to help move furniture, but you kind of look like an ass if you, uh, if, if you decline to help, uh, and this is kind of the same thing here, you know, so the harbors are bodyguards, and, you know, well, we're just surrounded by other readers, right? You don't have any enemies here, so there's no real reason to, you know, you don't need your bodyguard around us. So it's kind of the same thing. You know, you don't want to give your bodyguard away, but, you know, <laughs> if you refuse, then it's kind of like, well, what, dude? You, you, you think you need your bodyguard around us? So it's kind of like these, these one, you know, one of these questions you ask where you, the person can't really say no without uh, looking looking like an ass, even though you should be able to say no to it. Um, and maybe you get a little feeling here, too, that Baz isn't the only one who doesn't respect Lyrtis, right? You know, you don't see the vicar asking uh, Marla Colnar to use her harbor, right? <laughs> you know, they're picking on the Lyrtis here. So, regardless, Rox goes over to help the vicar, right? You know, he's yanking up the Sidious's chain, forcing the man to, you know, look up again and answer, answer the questions here. You know, the vicar insists again, you know, where did you learn to read? In the home of the scribes, you know, the the uh, the city list says, which apparently doesn't mean anything to Baz, but Deliritus explains he means tome. You know, again, tome, which this this is the ruined city, right, that uh, seems to have been destroyed in, in the burning that happened in the prologue. Um, you know, and Baz... You know, when the city list says this, Baz is like, oh, well, this guy's gone mad from the torture, right? You know, Tome was raised over 300 years ago. It's nothing more than a big pile of rubble now. You know, so obviously there's no way the city list could have learned to read there. So it sounds like he's just kind of raving uh, about nothing here. You know, and again, uh, we're not coming right out and saying it, but, you know, we've heard about Tome and the burning, and this, just more evidence. If, if you weren't convinced already, you know, it was the burning that was happening in the prologue. Um, so, so, so there you go. I don't think that's much of a spoiler here uh, at this point. And you can certainly see why, you know, no one in the room, uh, including the vicar, believes he actually learned to read there at Tome. You know, just, you know, there's nothing there. You know, there might, you might see a dragon or two there. Oh, that's right. The vicar just kind of tosses that in, right? Well, we send people out there. We see dragons sometimes, but no people who can teach you to read. So, um, so I guess hidden in there, I didn't even really think of this until now, but we learned no one's seen a book dragon for since the burning, right? So there must be other types of dragons um, other than the book dragons, right? Because the vicar does say we occasionally see dragons out there in the ruins. Um, and the vicar 
despite not getting an answer to his questions, he's almost pleased, right? You know, he's obviously got kind of a, uh, you know, he's getting a little little bit of a sick streak in him, right? He likes uh, he likes doing this torture stuff. It's not just a job for him, you know. And obviously, Marla, you know, Marla, Marla seems to be uh, competing with him for who can take greater enjoyment in this torture, right? She is more than happy to hand over this uh, this dagger that she has, so uh, so the torturer can can use it. Uh, on the city list, so you know, not not nice people here, not at all. Um, and of course, this dagger becomes very relevant very quickly here. You know, we've read the chapter, so everyone knows what happens next. Now, you know, Rox yanks on the chain, and this time it snaps. Oh no! Uh, and if you were paying close attention, I did I did kind of stick in there right when Bass first entered. You know, it was an old rusty chain. Um, so I set up very subtly that this could happen, that the, the chain could break. And obviously Rox is, uh, Rox is, you know, as close to a giant as, uh, as people come. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that Rox could snap this rusty chain, right? So Rox yanks on the chain, it snaps, he goes flying backwards, right? If, if you pull up on a chain and you suddenly lose tension, you're gonna, you're gonna go falling. So it kind of takes Rox out of the action for a minute now. And uh, the vicar is also startled. He, you know, he falls back. Oh, and he drops the knife. <clears throat> and so everyone's kind of like frozen and not sure how to act for a second. And the city list sees his chance, right? He is going to go attack the nearest person in this room, this room of people who have been torturing him for who knows how long. And of course, uh, good old Deliritus, he is the closest person. <laughs> and then the city list still has his chains attached to his wrists. And he starts flailing them around. You know, Deliridus manages to dodge them, so his other speaker, this Delida, uh, takes it in the throat, right? She is, you know, she's tossed backwards. We don't, you know, Bass thinks she's dead, right? Uh, and then the city list picks up the knife and he charges Deliritus. Uh, you know, and it, oh, oh, Deliritus. Turns out on top of everything else, he's a bit of a coward, right? You know, Bass says he's taken fencing lessons, but Deliridus just kind of holds up his hands and cowers and what, he screams, right? He's like, oh, you know, he's not going to save himself. So Baz is, he's got a situation, hes his dream's about to come true, right? And, you know, he just said he dreams of Deliridus jumping off Xavier Tower so he doesn't have to deal with him anymore. And Deliridus is about to eat it here, right? The city list is going to, uh, uh, you know, stab him with a dagger. Um, but, you know, maybe we learned Baz wasn't totally in earnest when he said that. Uh, right, you know, Bass takes quick stock of the situation here. Still got rocks. He's peeling himself off a four. He's not going to be able to help Deliritus, and no one else is moving to help him either. Right? Um, you know, everyone else, like I said, everyone is supposedly on the same side here. But Baz really sees how it is. They're all really competitors, and uh, none of the other readers here are going to be too upset if Deliritus is killed. That's one less person for them to compete with, right? Um. And that just doesn't sit right with Baz. You know, we've seen, uh, <laughs> you know, Baz has a conscience here, right? You know, he he uh, he talks a big talk, but, you know, he's a bit of a softy underneath. Uh, you know, and he's he's actually annoyed with himself, right? It's like, oh, why why, why aren't I happy that Delirious is about to die? You know, he says, uh, the text says, Baz ought to have felt satisfaction at that, Deliritus falling victim to the same societal mores that had victimized Baz's brother. But instead, Baz found a hollow emptiness in his gut. Right. Um, you, know, you know, he helped the lady with the chicks, right? And then he, tr- he at least tried to help that illit with his door. 
Now he's going to save Deliridus, despite how much he dislikes him. Uh, Bez sticks the foot out. He trips the Cityless, uh, saves Deliridus, though even though... You know, the knife goes whizzing past Delirius's head. Uh, my efforts were almost wasted. He almost gets stabbed by the knife anyway. Uh, but no, Delirius survives, and, you know, that those few seconds that Baz buys, that's enough for Rox to recover. And, uh, you know, we see kind of in person for the first time how vicious Rox can be. You know, as Baz puts it, he punches the Cityless in the face with his razor. But remember, this, you know, this razor is like a three-foot-long uh, saw made of steel. So if you, you get punched in the face with this thing, uh, it's uh, it's not pretty. You know, basically the guy's head explodes when Rox punches him. Right, you know, uh, splattering blood and everywhere. And then you know, as the chapter closes, just for an instant, oh, Deliridus, just for an instant, uh, we think maybe, oh, maybe he's got a little bit of humanity in them, right? You know, he jumps up and runs over to his fallen speaker. You know, Delida, the one who got hit by the chain. He's concerned, right? sounds like he's concerned oh delida speak to me you know that's what he says when he runs over to her you know she responds and her voice is all messed up right you know she just got hit in the throat by a chain you know my voice would be messed up too <laughs> i wouldn't uh, i wouldn't be doing this podcast right now right um but we quickly see delirious wasn't actually concerned about her right it's just thinking about himself uh remember she was supposed to go on the trials with him but if she can't speak she's not much used to him right the speakers are all about talking uh, Deliridus says, oh, your voice. <laughs> Again, you know, even when he says that, well, maybe he's still concerned, but then what will I do for the trials if you can't speak? You know, and then the chapter ends with this creepy Rita, or reader, Marla, the tumor Marla, right? <laughs> you know, Marla is, you know, over there cackling in the background at Deliridus' misfortune. And remember, she's one of his competitors at the trials, right? So she's, she's pleased to see, uh, one of her competitor speakers go down before the competition has even started. Um, I'm just kind of reinforcing here, right, what Bass said at the beginning, how, uh, you know, she doesn't care for her fellow readers, or at least the readers don't care for, for each other, right? They're just in competition. And uh, that's really it. Just one last thing to note. I skipped over this a little here. Um store away what that city list said before he charged Deliridus, right? What is it? Declaimer's transcendence. Declaimer's transcendence. Well, what is that? And, you know, Baz obviously has no idea. Um, the, so it's, the Declaimer's transcendence, he cried out like a madman. He'll speak the words to set us free. And then he runs at Deliridus. Um, no time for, no time to consider that in the moment. You know, the action was was happening in real time there. So Baz, you know, wonders about it for a second, and then uh, we don't really dwell on it anymore. And, you know, at this point, we kind of just think the Cityless is raving, right? But, uh, you know, we're going to just store that away. Uh, the Declaimer's Transcendence, that's not the last time we're going to hear uh, that phrase. So keep that in mind in the weeks to come. It'll, uh, it'll be relevant again here soon. And then that's really it. We're done with Chapter 4. So next week we're going to read two chapters, 5 and 6. So, you know, maybe it's... It's looking like maybe episodes are just going to be an hour long. I don't don't know. Send me, you know, leave me a comment or shoot me an email. How do you feel about the length of these episodes so far? You like having the the long form or do I need to cut it back a little? Still getting my feet under me a little here um, with the podcasting. So... Uh, definitely happy to tailor it uh, however uh, you find it most enjoyable and useful. 
But in chapters five and six, we will return to Torchsire Library. And like I uh, hinted at earlier, we're going to see some readers fighting each other. And we will learn some more interesting details about the dynamic between reader, speaker, and harbor. And then after that, we are going to meet uh, the Duke for the first time, uh, Deliritus' father, so the Duke of Torchsire Library. Um, what do you think of him? Uh, what does Baz think of him? Uh, and, you know, let me know, too. Do we finally, for the first time, uh, have some reason to feel um, bad for Deliritus? Or, or no, do we still just, uh, do we still just hate Deliritus? Let's, uh, let's see how you feel about that after Chapter 5. Um, and then we are going to see, you know, we could debate this a little, too, but I think it's the inciting incident of the story, I think, happens in Chapter 5. Um, in retrospect, maybe you could say it already happened here in chapter four, but, or you could maybe even argue it hasn't quite happened. It doesn't even happen in this part two. It doesn't happen until part three. I, I think that would be less of an argument, but let's see. Maybe we, uh, I'll make a note to discuss that next week. What do you think the inciting incident is? Um, but I bet, I bet you guys can see where this is going, right? Um, I mean, we got the name of the book, right? The Actus Trials. <laughs> so, um, and Baz is our main character. So, uh, you probably, you can probably guess. But if not, don't worry. We'll find out here soon, next week. Um, and then chapter six, we're going to read two. Relatively short, but we see uh, kind of an interesting interaction between Deliritus and his uncle, shedding some light on the challenges Deliritus is going to face at the trials. And then we see Baz and Deliritus have their first kind of true interaction besides their bit of bickering there down in the torture chamber. And uh, kind of no surprise, that doesn't go terribly well. Um, but we do learn some other interesting tidbits about the magic system during that interaction, so look out for that. So that's your homework for this week. And uh, <laughs> as usual, remember, uh, if you don't do it, it's okay. You all get A pluses just tuning in participation trophies uh and report cards for everyone uh, i will be reading all of it for you in the next episode and answering all these questions and more right so the quest for this week and just a reminder um i'm still accepting answers to the quests from episodes one through three i'll be accepting those until the first episode in march where we'll be declaring the first ever D.D. Kane's Fantasy Book Club quest victor. So get those answers in. Uh, there will be some glorious prize <laughs> for, the, for, the, for the winner. Uh, so get those answers in, D.D. Kane at ddkane.com. Uh, for this week, uh, I'd like you to send me your favorite excerpt from Chapter 4. Uh, maybe this is... Uh, <laughs> maybe this is a bit self-serving for me but it's my podcast so i'd like to hear what you're thinking here you know i think baz had some particularly uh entertaining one-liners in this chapter and i wasn't able to touch on all of them so that'd be interesting to hear you know did you like one of the ones i discussed uh in this episode or maybe there was one i missed um and uh you you found it particularly entertaining or you know if you read something that you thought was uh, interesting or profound or thought-provoking you know you can send that to me as well it doesn't have to be something funny um, one experience point for everyone who emails me an answer, and you know this is a, this is easy experience, right? Um, all you gotta do is uh, all you gotta do is send me something, and uh, and you'll get the point here. So uh, keep those emails coming. 
And um, that's all except for our quote that we end with every week. And this week we went with Mr. Tolkien, the father of modern epic fantasy, right? Author of Lord of the Rings and a bunch of other books. So J.R.R. Tolkien once said, Fantasy is escapist, and that is its glory. If a soldier is imprisoned by the enemy, don't we consider it his duty to escape? If we value the freedom of mind and soul, if we're partisans of liberty, then it's our plain duty to escape and to take as many people with us as we can. So, let's see. By reading fantasy, you are promoting freedom of the mind and the soul and liberty for for others. So, spread the word of uh spread the word of fantasy all you listeners out there help free some minds and souls and uh if you want to free your mind and soul next week be sure to tune back in to dd kane's epic fantasy book club uh and until next time i will talk to you soon have a good one baz certainly didn't get involved in politics but one would have to be blind deaf and likely dead <laughs> Oh, geez, I'm feeling dead today. <clears throat> the hall's center was occupied by a spa- <clears throat> spiraling staircase. Whoa! Thanks for listening to D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. If you liked today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're watching on YouTube, give this video a thumbs up if you liked it and hit that subscribe button and the bell so you get notified whenever new episodes become available. If you'd like to listen to back episodes or review the show notes, visit dtkane.com slash podcast. DT Kane's novels are available for purchase at most major online retailers, or you can purchase directly from his website at www.dtkane.com slash books. You can receive a free short story and sign up for DT Kane's mailing list at dtkane.com slash email dash sign up. If you'd like to connect, you can find DT Kane on Facebook at DT Kane Author or Twitter at DT Kane Author, or send DT Kane an email at DT Kane at DT Kane.com. See you next week.